Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. Uh, another episode in the bag. Absolutely. Um, we're, we're actually really, really excited about this one because uh, today we have the pleasure of interviewing both of our mentor, teacher, friend, uh, arranger extraordinaire, um, and overall good guy, Rich DeRosa. Yeah, this guy is a guy that really, really shaped the way that Drew and I approach music and in a lot of ways life as well. So, well, uh, welcome to the show, Rich. Thank you, Aaron and Drew. It's a great pleasure. I always uh, enjoy seeing you guys, and I'm so proud of you. How you guys, uh, well, both of you were extraordinary talents when you first came to UNT, and uh, it was just such a pleasure to work with both of you. And my biggest re- regret is that I had to let you go out into the professional world, <laughs> where, where you guys are doing great. Uh, you know, thank you, thanks, Rich. Rich. So uh, now I'm, you know, just uh, always glad to stay in touch and. Uh, Watch your careers flourish and uh, become family men and yes, all, yeah. all that good stuff. Indeed, yeah. indeed. <laughs> For those of you who uh, might not be hip to Rich, you should definitely check out his writing. You can hear a lot of his charts with the uh, Lincoln Center Band with Wynton Marsalis. He was the conductor-in-chief for the VDR Big Band in Germany for four years, five years well, I, I started working with them in 2012. Right. And right. then um, after a series of projects, uh, they asked me to be their chief conductor, and I did that for a couple of years. And right. now I'm hoping to kind of return to like a part-time status right. with them. They, they have a change. Um, the gentleman who was directing and running the whole thing as far as the coordination is uh, stepping down after quite a few years in the position and there's a, right. a woman who's going to be taking over in October. So okay. um, after that transition, we'll see what happens. But I have a new, brand new CD out with Dial and Oates, my buddies Gary Dial and he, Dick Oates. Yes, 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 with yes, yes. WDR band. Beautiful. And, uh, that's coming out this month. August 18th is the official date where uh, people can get it on Amazon. It's called Rediscovered Ellington. Beautiful. And but you can also hear Rich on a number of other places, including uh, he's done a ton of work for theater, for uh, documentaries. What 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 else am I what else am I missing, Aaron? You, um, you, you well, know. you have a new uh, new album of your music called Perseverance. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And that's um, you know since I arrived at UNT in 2010, as you know, the uh, one o'clock lab band records every year, and you guys were always either playing in it or contributing arrangements. And so it kind of became customary through uh, Neil Slater when uh, you know he would write a chart every year. And so I figured, well, this is a good way for uh, me to kind of get established at UNT. And, and in a way, too, it was also I wanted to kind of present a model for all the students so mm-hmm. that every year to write one of my own charts... And to try to do something that was always different from the previous 
chart to kind of send a subliminal message to the writers don't write the same chart all the time wow. right. right so with the uh recent uh, anniversary the school had a 125th anniversary and the dean at the time jim scott asked if i would write an orchestral piece as you guys are well familiar we'll, yes we'll tell them about your your role in it as well <laughs> so with that and uh i don't know it just seemed like a good time and i spoke to craig marshall about putting together a compilation CD of that work called Sweet for an Anniversary and um, some of the charts, all of the charts that I did for the 1 o'clock and a few for the 2 o'clock band. So it, now it's immortalized on that, that CD called Perseverance. Beautiful. And uh, Aaron played, uh, was the featured tenor saxophone soloist on mm-hmm. uh, the suite. And, and Drew did all the... Preparation, manuscript preparation, which helped <laughs> that, me out greatly. I was, a, I was, a, that was a chore. I was a bear right there. It was good. Yeah, was yeah, fun. it was a lot of yeah. music. So yeah, it was great. great. So I was happy about that, you know, because it's sometimes, as you know, you, you, uh, you don't get to choose how an arrangement lives on. Right. Sometimes it's just performed live once, and you, you forget That's about it. it. Right. Other times it's maybe recorded on a concert, and then. The best way, I think, is to get it on a CD, if it's good. Right. <laughs> you know, you get sure. it on a CD, and now it's uh, truly documented history. So uh, the, the thing we always start with is uh, kind of asking what your, you know, your intro to music was, and, and how did you get into music in general, and also in the business of music writing? We, we know you very well, of course, and, yeah. but we want our listeners right. to, to know where you're coming from and, and everything. So yeah, yeah. Uh, go for it. Well, yeah, well, for those who don't know, my father, uh, his name is Clem DeRosa, and uh, he, uh, he passed away in 2011 at the age of 86, but he had a very full productive life and uh he was a professional musician who recorded with charlie mingus and john laporta and and, uh, a lot of other artists and then uh but his real claim to fame was in 1955 when he started a uh, jazz band for elementary school and subsequently went into junior high and high school and uh gained national recognition to the point where when Stan Kenton wanted to start getting education, basically, to take hold of jazz and, and incorporate it so that it could basically sustain it. Because at the end of the 1950s, or maybe even prior to that, but uh, certainly by that time, Stan had the foresight to recognize that jazz was no longer going to be America's popular music. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. that, it, like classical music, if it were to sustain itself, it needed to be housed in schools you know, and, and developed with future generations like you guys are representing, you know? We have to keep those right. generations going. But anyway, um, so there was a tie-in with uh, UNT way back then with my dad and Leon Breeden, and they were all part of that original faculty with uh, Stan. And I remember as a little kid going to those workshops. So mm-hmm. basically, to answer your question, I was born into this. Sure. You know, and um, had a lot of records. I listened to the recordings that my dad made and other recordings. And it wasn't even, I mean, it was just such a natural thing. You didn't even think think about it, mm, you know. Right. That yeah. said, you know, I think we all know people who have um, talented parents 
and the children are raised in that environment, but it, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do what we do. Right, right, right. I think right, it's right. a combination of, I mean, all, all three of us have a lot of natural talent. And mm-hmm. all the all the arrangers you've interviewed for the podcast and and will interview have that same natural ability, combined with you know the ability to to continue to learn to be diligent mm-hmm. to to really want to to struggle against that writing block right that right. we all have and of learn course. and and, right. and uh, so for me it was um, that combination you know the natural talent instilled the curiosity or the fun part and then I had to figure out how how to get better but I was you know fortunate with a lot of opportunities with my dad I got to bring music in and his bands would play them and did you start as a pianist or a drummer no or actually because my or? dad's a drummer although he played all the instruments right and, which helped him greatly in teaching young kids because he could play saxophone, trombone, and trumpet, wow. and and drums, and uh, he did some writing. But there was a drum set in the house. So, uh, from what he told me, you know, as like maybe as early as two or three. I was, oh man! But but then you know, with like little kids, I mean, what little kid doesn't love a drum set? Right. You know? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so, a natural uh, natural fit. But um, at seven is when he started teaching me. Mm. You know, a little bit, just ba- basic things, not not out of a book, just how to right. play. The ride symbol and how to work things here and there, uh, but it, I remember in well, by the time I got to fourth grade, uh, you know, they start the kids on nothing, and, and especially with drums, it's like they give you these fat sticks and a and a pad. And I was right. already at third as a third grader, I was already on the drum set. I'm thinking, what the, what is this, you know? <laughs> so I did uh, fourth grade. I went through, you know, sitting in the percussion section playing these stupid parts. Oh, like, no. And then at some point, I saw a trumpet in my dad's closet. And something made me pick it up. And so he started teaching me. And so in fifth grade, that's when I started playing trumpet. Huh. I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then I guess I was always playing piano a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I started, we had a little jazz band in eighth grade, and I was playing the marimba and doing really? some piano. And I always sang in the chorus, which I think is, I always, as you guys know, but I always tell arrangers, they say, well, how can I learn how to hear better and develop things? And, and especially for vocal writing, one of the best things I think an arranger can do is to sing in a chorus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And uh, you learn how to sing those those parts and you learn about voice leading and all mm-hmm. those things. So, I mean, I wasn't aware of that at the time. It was just, I did as much music as yeah. I could. And all of those experiences fed my ability as a writer, you know? So I kept the trumpet going and the drums. I'd be playing mostly drums and jazz and trumpet in concert band and, and stuff like that. And then when I got into high school, the band director bought new mellophone, which Stan Kenton used, ah, you know, his neophonic. And those were like so neat and bright and shiny. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. You know, old bells, yeah. Yeah. So I was doing that. And then he, he said... DeRosa, you're going to play French horn. And I'm thinking, what? Well, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. Not the greatest thing, but it was certainly a wonderful thing. Yeah. Because I never would have done it on my own. But the guy was losing some French horns. And, you know, that instrument, you need a good ear to play that instrument. You were going to rock it no matter what you were doing. (laughs) you know, to the best of my... But anyway, I played French horn the last two years of high school. And uh, that was a fabulous experience because, as you know, you know, when you... 
it's really hard for people, I think, to write for an ensemble or a certain style of music if they've never played in the ensemble. Right. right? To try to teach somebody to write jazz who's never played in a jazz band, mm. it's really difficult. And I think in terms of orchestra, too, it's it's uh, if you're sitting in the orchestra, certainly it's not a guarantee that, that somebody's going to learn how to write. Because most people, most orchestral musicians probably don't write for orchestra. But I think right. for from from a person who's a writer to have some memorable, tangible experience sitting in an orchestra mm-hmm. and hear how it doesn't balance and right. hear you know all those different and the colors. And I, I remember one of the first gigs I had when I graduated college was playing with Peter Nero, who is um, a pianist. I believe he's still still around but his claim to fame was he was kind of like a pops pianist classical and jazz mixed nice right very accomplished classical piano his jazz influence was uh, oscar peterson okay wow and um i was uh, 22 i guess something like that and doing these gigs and we would do a lot of uh, pops orchestra things with the trio you know it was uh-huh. peter the bass player and myself right and i got to sit right in the, the front right and the best thing for me about that gig as from the writing standpoint was that i got to hear peter's wonderful arrangements yeah. and i learned by hearing the orchestrations up close and listening to rehearsals and and all of that That's so awesome. but all these things fed me and you as you know as you guys heard me uh, say many times in in class to the students at UNT, regardless of what your instrument is, you have to learn, or you should learn, to become a singer, a pianist, maybe a drummer to some extent, conducting, yeah, right? Which those, you, you guys, you guys right. do all of those things too. You know? Right. When did you? A lot of the our guests have said, when did you? What they they reminisce on their experience of their first chart they brought into an ensemble. To oh read. yeah. What 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 was yours? Gosh. Well, the earliest one I can remember, I think, formally, was uh, an SATB vocal of My Sharia Moore, which I did oh. when I was in ninth grade. And, cool. the, and the choir performed it. And then jazz band, I think I started bringing stuff in in 10th grade. Nice. And... Uh, and this was on your own volition, or yeah, your, oh your yeah, dad it was always okay. oh no, my dad, my dad was smart in the sense of he was not a stage father, mm-hmm. you know, right? Um, even though he saw, I'm sure, an abundant talent and ability. I mean, it's not that he didn't give me some opportunities, but he wasn't he wasn't a pusher. He never said, hey, you know, you should write a chart. You should do this. You should, hey, let's plan. You know, he was never strategizing. It was always just let this kid be a kid, yeah. let the talent flow naturally. And mm-hmm. and a lot of times he would let me come to him. The one time I will tell you is it was really an insidious thing that it was, it cracked me up. And I was, I must have been about 12 or 13. And I was sitting down in our basement uh, where there were the drums and the piano. We had an old upright piano. And I'm playing on the piano, and my dad comes down, and uh, and so he asked me to help him. He says, "Hey, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on my ear training a little bit or something." I, I, I forgot uh, even how he said it, but I would just I would just play any two notes, and he would go major sixth. You know, if it was a major sixth, or like C to F, perfect fourth. You know, D to F, minor third, and he wouldn't tell me anything else. He would just start announcing these things. So, what's a 
an inquisitive, talented kid going to say? Right. Hey, Dad, what is that? Uh, right? It's like, right? What's a minor third? Blah blah blah. So he had now. Now he had me. See what I mean? And that's that's yeah. how yeah. he wasn't saying, "Okay, well, look, I'm, we're going to talk about ear ear training, and you were the first, It's very important to learn your intervals and blah 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 blah." He never went into that stuff. It was always a natural, a natural thing. Wow, you know, huh. very smart. Yeah, nice. So, so then after high school, yeah. You went on to well, college. oh yeah. So the by the time, oh, it was another thing. My dad said he something I never would have done, but he had me study classical piano right. in my senior year with one of his colleagues where he was teaching, and so I remember I was playing um, Beethoven's G major sonata. Yep. Which kicked my butt. Yeah. Uh, and I think I played. I can't remember. Simple. Maybe it was the, the C major two-part invention by Bach, you know. But that was that was really, really helpful. But I knew by the time I was going into college that I wanted to basically... I knew I would always play drums, but I didn't want to have to make a living as a drummer. Okay. Why? Because, especially on my... You guys are... You know, you guys, when you play your saxophone or piano, whatever, you can, you can express yourself contrapuntally, melodically, mm. at the keyboard, harmonically, that kind of thing. And on drums, you know, it, it's, it's more limited. Plus, the other thing was, I'd done enough gigs on drums to realize that I didn't want to be doing dumb gigs where I'm just going, boom, check, boom, check, boom, check. Right, or, or playing, playing. You know, I mean, and I, and I and I've done a lot of gigs. I mean, some really good, you know, like club days used to do in New York City. Played with some outstanding jazz musicians. We'd be playing somebody's wedding or something, you know. So those things were were great. But I knew I didn't want to have to make a living playing some, you know, dumb drum part or working on a conductor that maybe. Didn't know even as much as I knew. Like I'm sitting in a rehearsal and, and thinking like, you know, I, I could fix this problem, but this conductor doesn't know what to do. Right, right. So I wanted to, and, and the other part of it is just the, the personal gratification. You know, when you have the ability to express yourself melodically, harmonically, contrapuntally, orchestrationally, and just one of the most magnificent things that we all can relate to is how do we take these 12 notes and organize them in such a way that it evokes uh, emotion right and it moves people it's like yeah. wow you know that what an amazing thing to be able to do right so right. i knew said well i'm i'm i want to really do the writing thing mm -hmm. and the drums will be you know I'll, I'll still do do gigs here and there and it'll be fun but I don't have to make a living doing it. And the other part of it, at the time I didn't know because I didn't know if I was going to be a teacher, certainly. But as I, certainly as I became like your age, you guys moving now into the professional world, you know, by that time I knew I had a passion for teaching and the ability to, to kind of do it, you know, pretty well at my young age of when I was 25 or whatever, wow. you know. So that became a three-part you know, three Invention. components. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, part was always teaching, part was always writing, and part was drumming. And the proportion when I was in my 20s was certainly much different. I was doing more gigs drumming than writing because 
you know, I mean, like the things I've told you guys, people aren't going to pay you to write your own music. Right. It's, no. You have to do, you're writing for other people and what they need. So that's when I also knew, say, man, I'm not just going to be a jazz writer. I'm going to write whatever is required. So I did vocal arrangements. I did big band. I did stuff for theater. Mm-hmm. I did whatever opportunity came my way, whether it was a composition, arrangement, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, If I could do it reasonably well, I said, yes. Right. And that's how I was able to eventually, you know, change that proportion where all of a sudden it's like, it doesn't make sense for me to take this gig on drums. I've got too much writing to do. Right. Or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. And you went to Manhattan School of Music, is that right? Yeah, I got my um, my graduate degree at Manhattan. Manhattan was the first school. This was in I was in the first class, 1984. We went in. We graduated in 1985, and that was the back then. The masters was only one year, if you can oh, believe wow. it. And I was I was in with some really excellent colleagues. We were all in our late twenties. I think, but uh, John Riley, oh yeah, great drummer. Man. Oh yeah, both of us played in the jazz band. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, there's another great drummer, writer Roland Vasquez. Oh yeah, um, some other guys from foreign countries who uh, I don't know if Americans would know, but uh, let me see. I'm trying to think of some of the other prominent American jazz musicians: Todd Kuhlman and of course David oh. Berger, you, whom oh, you yeah. interviewed. Of course, all of us got our master's degree from Manhattan. Why? Because, believe it or not, prior to 1984, there were no programs for graduate jazz in New York. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And the only degree program, I believe at the time, for undergrad was at William Patterson. But anyway, yeah, the the degree was in... um, what we call jazz commercial music. Was Rayburn Wright teaching? No, uh, Rayburn Wright is, was at uh, he, he was, was at, at Eastman. Eastman. Excuse me. Yes. yes. Now Eastman had you know an amazing writing program, but to my knowledge, it wasn't a degreed program. Right. I think right. it was a traditional degree or something. I, I'm David not sure was, about David that. David was telling us when, when he yeah. was there. Yeah. 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 Well, that was yeah. a summer study thing. Right. They go up in the summer and Manny Album. Right. And Rayburn Wright. Yeah. We're doing that. But uh, yeah, I mean now there's a zillion schools out there. Of course, right? yeah, that, that yeah, do it. But of course, you guys <laughs> did the smart thing. You came to UNT, <laughs> and not a uh, shameless plug. <laughs> had, had a had a great program, right? I mean, the yeah, great thing about yeah. UNT is that you have so many wonderful ensembles, right? To do plus. You guys got to be my TAs. Yes. That's right. So you yep. got a little, made a little money. Yes, yep. indeed. On the deal. And it was you a got a, you, yeah. you, you got, uh, both of you got your bachelor. No, you uh, you got your bachelor's, Aaron, at uh, Eau Claire. Eau Claire. And then yep. you got your master's and doctorate. Yep, yep. And yeah. uh, at UNT. And then uh, Drew did your bachelor's and master's, master's. at right. UNT. And six great years. So got great educations, relatively unscathed, right? That's right. No yes. massive, no massive debt. No, it's <laughs> right. great. It's yeah. great. Yeah. After your education phase, um, and maybe there's some crossover with your education as well, but you've done so many different things for different people over the years: writing, playing, 
but maybe could you run us through maybe some of the highlights and maybe things that really were like exciting opportunities? Yeah, sure. That you learned from or something? Yeah, I think maybe like writing for I, Mel Lewis's band when you yeah, were 24, you know, <coughs> right? Or 23? How old? Were yeah, you? let me see. I, I'll try to just do a, a, a. You know, it's it's impossible to try to predict what your career is going to be, and I because now my career has been rather long. And I look back and I think about all the different little things, how it changed for me here and there. And partly, I think, because I was of the mindset to embrace possibilities. And I think also it, it, it's important to be happy and sincere in what you're doing. And everybody yeah. has to find out what, what that means individually to that person. But... Um, and I guess the opportunities too. Well, you know, a lot of people will say, "Well, how do I become a writer?" And my first answer is, "Finish what you start." Right. Yeah. Don't worry about how good it is. Just finish the thing mm-hmm. and and write sincerely. Right. To 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 do when you're writing for yourself. It's like, what do you want to say? And then eventually, and to practice. I mean, I remember used to uh, listen to to pieces, um, not even consciously, but I would, you know, somehow by accident through the radio, concert, whatever hear a piece of music mm-hmm. and be uh it would resonate in in such a inspiring way it was like wow that's that's really neat i have to try to do something like that right, right. Mm-hmm. but um and and of course that big question you know you you finish your schooling and now it's like well welcome to the world mm-hmm. and now how mm-hmm. am i going to if or that's the other thing i guess i mean for me there was never really it wasn't like well i'm really good with computer science or whatever uh, and I'm going to do this and, uh, you know, just do music part-time. It was like, no, you have to make a living doing this. Uh, yeah. So um, from the writing standpoint, this ironically came through my dad. My dad became a, a conductor of the Glenn Miller Band. They were actually, they started a second one. Because right. there was one that, that was always in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so um, the gentleman who was running the Glenn Miller estate somehow, I don't know, heard about my dad or whatever bottom line is he asked my dad if he would uh get involved with the glenn miller band and develop another separate band which he eventually took to europe but he made a recording called up where we belong and it was you know that was a a popular tune that uh joe cocker had sung for a movie called an officer and a gentleman Okay. okay so this was in the early 1980s 83 84 something like that and uh, the concept of the album was if if Glenn Miller were, al- were alive, because it was always a popular music band. It wasn't really a jazz band as right, much. Uh, right. it, was, it was swing because it was the swing era. Right. But essentially the idea was Glenn Miller was was uh, one of the pop music musicians of the day. Absolutely. Right? So what if he were alive in 1980? What mm. would the music, you know... T- t- and so the the idea was to take popular music of that time period, the 1980s, and put it kind of in the Glenn Miller style. So there were several arrangers, uh, Billy Verplank, John LaBarbera, and others whom I can't remember because they, the publishing company or the record company didn't put the arrangers oh my gosh. on the wow. record, which is another frustrating thing. Get used huh. to it, fellas, <laughs> that a lot of times your name doesn't even go on. Nobody knows who did right. the thing, right? which is always a drag. But... Anyway, good things came from this because I did three arrangements 
Uh, one was the title track, Up Where We Belong. I did uh, an arrangement of You Are the Sunshine of My Life. And ah. and then... Um, I can't remember the name of it now. Hmm. Something with friends in it. Just friends? The title. No, it wasn't just friends. It was more like... It, Dion Warwick sang it. I oh, can't okay. remember. But anyway... So my dad put together, had to put together another Glenn Miller band. Well, he did it with all New York guys. Uh, so Dick Oates was playing lead. Oh, Ralph yeah. Lalama was in the section. Oh, yeah. And a couple of other guys whom I, I can't remember. But they were all seasoned New York guys. And and the gentleman playing drums was none other than Mel Lewis. Oh. <clears throat> and Mel and my dad were working on a book together. I think it was maybe around the same time. It's called It's Time for the Big Band Drummer. And it's a, an amazing book because it teaches young drummers how it's to interpret time, jazz. Time yes, exactly. Band. And they talk about some of the fundamentals, but the main thing of the book is to teach drummers how to interpret drum charts. And Mel would like, right. okay, I'm using this symbol well, here and I'm doing that there or whatever. And then better master than Mel. Uh, yeah, yeah, so um, anyway, this was at a time when the Vanguard band or what was mel lewis's mel band lewis's you know band, i mean there's yeah. you know we should mention also about the the new book the 50 years at the vanguard orchestra i don't know if you guys have seen that yes it's an amazing compilation i was of the I history was, i was in new york a couple months ago and they were yeah. selling that I, yeah. so uh not to get too long-winded but you know after thad left mel was uh really you know, in a vulnerable place. He was like, what's going to happen here? And then, of course, he brought in his friend Bob Brookmeyer, and Bob took it in a completely other direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was fascinating. But eventually, he moved on. And so there was this period... You say he wrote himself out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, he he wanted it, you know, and, and, and he was doing some, you know, almost like... I remember one time he was he was working on an opera type thing. So he was like really stretching out. Yeah. But of course, it didn't uh, necessarily uh, always work for the band. Yeah. But yeah. It, originally, it was it was a uh, salvation for Mel, mm-hmm. right? And I think uh, anyway. But but there comes this time where there's opportunity comes along, and so Mel needed young writers. So Bob Mincer had done a few charts for the band mm-hmm. that were were great, yeah. and he was a few years older. So he, I think he was. He had done already a few things for Mel. And then there were some other guys like myself and Kenny Werner. Oh, yeah. Mm. Jim McNeely had just started to write. And um, a couple of other guys, Ted Nash had done some eventually, oh, yeah. and, and Ed yeah. Neumeister. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but anyway, Mel, I guess he was impressed with the, the Glenn Miller charts that I did. And he wanted to. He needed some charts. So this was uh, the, the album that these wound up on. It was uh, called 20 Years of the Vanguard, which came out right. in, I think, 1980. Well, it was, mm-hmm. came out in 1986, but it was recorded in, in 85. And uh, Jim McNeely's Blue Note is on that. Mm-hmm. And um, I had Alone Together and Dearly Beloved. Right, yeah. And uh, I think Featuring we were the only... Pepper Adams and the no, it was, oh, no. Uh, no, it was Gary Smullyan. Oh, Gary Smullyan. Uh, I remember when Mel called me, he said, hey, hey, I want you to do... Uh, charts, you know, for the band. <laughs> and so, you know, I want you to do Alone Together for Dick Oates. Mm. And I want you to, to do, some, I can't remember, I think he said, I want you to do something for Gary Smullyan. So, and both of those guys were, were friends, you know. So I, I think I called Gary 
And I said, hey, man, what, what tunes do you like? What do you want to play on? And he said, dearly beloved. So now I'm just, you know, do it going to do the the charts but i guess here's another lesson for young writers out there it's like so here's my chance right to write for a great jazz band and it's not about what i want no. it's about what the band yeah. needs or yeah, what the right. director tells you you know so mm-hmm. to be prepared for that mindset is much healthier than oh man don't lock me in i gotta do my thing right right, right. i have to figure out how to do my thing within the context of what was needed and, ex- and expected and so, uh, uh, so I did those two charts, and you know that was that really kind of put me, I guess, on on the radar screen in the yeah. in the jazz world, you know. Yeah, you know that actually brings up one of the questions I was thinking about is, do you obviously as arrangers we have to do both? We have to serve the client's needs or the band's whatever mm-hmm. the music's needs, and and then sometimes we get to do we get a carte blanche, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you have a personal preference? at all one or the other i mean obviously it's it's like you know yeah. comparing chocolate and vanilla it's it's yeah both I, great do you have a yeah. preference i i don't know but i i appreciate having parameters because mm-hmm. otherwise i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna have to come up with them myself right you know at some point i just you know we all need to figure out how to it's not even limit i like to use the word focus mm-hmm. you know to hone and think of things in the positive sense. But, um, you know, the thing is, going back to, to the things with Mel, so those, yes, were, those yes. were great in terms of, let's, I'll say fame, for lack of a better description, but they didn't pay the rent. Uh, sure. See what I mean? Sure. So at the same time, I had another opportunity with a, with a guy who I knew from college, and uh, he's kind of a musician, songwriter, guitarist type thing, but he was really good with business, and this was in New York, he was working for a publishing company called Cadman. Very elite productions. Uh, we were doing a thing with a very fine actor named E.G. Marshall. And they did what were called audiobooks. And uh-huh, right. this became like a big deal in the 80s. And so I did one production for him. And it was string quartet and flute and English horn. Okay. And yeah, very, you know, had nothing to do with jazz. Didn't sound like jazz, right? It's like this is part of my whole mindset. And so, uh, and then we did another project. And then he said to me, hey, you know what? We can do this on our own. And so we formed Mm. a publishing company called Blaine and DeRosa Productions. Nice. My partner's name is Steve Blaine. And he did most of the business and all of that. And I basically did whatever was required musically and most of it had nothing to do with jazz right. but i was making a living uh, i had a place to report into and it was fun and uh, and i was happy doing it you know um and i was like you aaron i had a young little little baby uh, so now it's like all of a sudden i had it you know kind of a steady income we were able to give ourselves uh, a pension uh-huh. and take care of our health benefits and things like that and so um i did that that was mid about the same time mid 80 and it was a different time i think you were vi- were victims of happenstance in the sense of the era i remember this one very fine jazz writer named alan faust who wrote for clark terry and he he had a very lucrative business doing commercials in manhattan and uh you know i was talking to him and trying to get some advice and i remember he told me he says 
don't put any jazz on your reel. Wow. Yeah. That's how, that's how, in terms of the commercial world, at that time, they didn't want to hear any jazz. Hmm. Wow. You know, and this was the whole time when like the MIDI thing was starting to happen and everything was becoming more electric. Yeah. Right. You know, but anyway, that carried, I, I stayed in that business for 20 years. And, and then, but I, and it was the other thing for me was to not just be content doing one thing. If I had room to do other things, then I did it. Right. And I think that's part of being the resourceful aspect of, of managing and sustaining a career because things can fall through. So if one thing falls through, you have maybe some other things, mm-hmm. right? Or some things are temporary. So like, for example, I mean, when I was going to bring another chart into the Vanguard, uh, by that time, Mel was suffering from cancer. And we actually read the one chart and he couldn't get through it. And he was, you know, oh. but then, you know, it was about the same time that I had done the first project with my buddies dial and oats we did a project called brassworks and that was that was recorded in 1990 and uh, one of the tunes on there that oats had written was called the tailor which was dedicated to mel they called him the tailor tailor. because he made everything fit so Uh yeah yeah but uh you know we finished the sessions and then we went over to the hospice so uh, to see, unfortunately, you know, his last hours. But, but you know, this is this is another one. Like, so for example, so, so I've done several Dial and Oates projects. The most recent one is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it was uh, is now called Rediscovered Ellington. But those are wonderfully artistic projects that we all need to do. But are are things that are not going to pay the rent from in any kind of stable way so you have to keep looking for steady income so now we're into the 1990s and uh, another opportunity came my way writing for Susanna McCorkle those are some great charts too. and so yeah there were always interpreter of the song yeah, yeah and they were always four horns and four rhythm and uh and the ability to you know, adjust to the context. I mean, Susanna is not a trained musician. She didn't know how to read music, but she was very accomplished in language and uh, and she was very dramatic. Mm-hmm. You know, she approached the song from the standpoint of the meaning of the lyrics. And and uh, I recognize it's like, well, I have to, to deal with her on that level. Right. It doesn't make, make sense to talk about music to her, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah right exactly you know the, the diminished scale or whatever so, um and so we did i don't know how many it was for about eight years worth of records for concord and then one day out of the blue we hear that she committed suicide yeah and so uh you know this is this is how suddenly things can end mm-hmm. you know but that was a good run so it had some wonderful musical moments and opportunities to create some fun arrangements and play with the top guys in New York. Yeah. She always put together bands. And then simultaneously, one of my colleagues at Manhattan School, where I was teaching, worked in television, ABC television. Oh, wow. And he asked me to become one of the contributing writers for a lot of these TV shows that he was connected with. Mm -hmm. As the World Turns, Guiding Light, Another World, I think. Mm -hmm. And... So it was another opportunity, something I'd never done before. And there's a there's a way to do things, you know. Was, this was a completely different context for me. And mm-hmm. so, you know, check your ego at the door yeah. and and listen to what 
the person who's familiar with the environment, I had to learn how to how to think the way he was thinking and to provide a product that was going to work for him. It's not about yeah. what I want. No. You know, I had to figure out how to do it. And it was all pretty much had to be done with MIDI. Why? Because the way the library queues work, they don't pay you for them. Right. You have to create them. And then they register them with either BMI or ASCAP. And then they go into the rotation of the library. And the TV producer decides randomly, or, or in other words, he's, he's going to look at the queues and, and whatever the show is doing and say, oh, I think I'll, I like this one. Right. Oh, okay. And so how you get paid is as if, you're, if your music is chosen and how often it's played. When we look back and we look back to all these amazing arrangers in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even 70s, and that's a long run and it was all acoustic arrangements. But now, all of us in the 21st century especially, it's like people expect you to do MIDI. At least, not, not maybe always for jazz arrangements, but, but certainly for anything that's non-jazz, they expect you to have some... And, and most any TV work and theater work, a, a lot of MIDI, you know. So anyway, we, we're at 2000. In 2001, I got the opportunity to, to write for Winton's band, and I've been doing that ever since. Yeah. So now my career is going back to more jazz stuff. Yeah. But it was good. always assignment writing, you know. Uh-huh. We need, we need a, a such and such a tune for such and such a singer, and it's all over the place. You know, yeah. it's like, it's not about what I want. It's about what they need. So yeah. you you fulfill that. And, um, you know, so now it's come pretty much full circle. I probably do, I do way more jazz writing than commercial writing. Hmm. Although right now I've just started another theater project. This company that I've been working for since 1990, we've done probably 25 shows or more, you know. And uh, I got out, you know, invest uh, about two months of time to to do the score and uh, create the soundtrack and all of that business but it pays royalties every month right you know so anytime there's a performance you get a check yeah that's so um it's you know that's that's been my career pretty much and the more and more writing that i did it was like well i just can't afford to to, I can't go out on tour. I can't do whatever. Yeah. And so, like when I was in New York, especially a lot of the guy, all the drummers up there, they knew that I wasn't either on the road or I wasn't doing steady gigs. So very often I would get last minute calls. Oh. Hey man, can you sub for me on whatever? Yeah. Which worked out great for them and for me because right. you know, as a writer, a lot of times you can't take. You don't want to commit to a gig too far ahead because you don't know what your writing schedule is going to be like. Uh-huh. But a last minute thing, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I can do it. Or no, I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and now I play, you know, still still do gigs, but I do it like it's for fun, you know? Yeah. It's not about the money as much. It's just, wow, it's for me to keep playing. As you know, we writers, we get into our lonely little world, right? Yeah. Yes. Writing music and not interacting, <laughs> not interacting with musicians. So, uh, whenever I get the chance to to perform with fellow musicians who I really enjoy being with, man, what's better than that, right? right? And Rich is a terrific drummer, so if you get a chance to maybe find some videos or something, I would highly recommend checking out his playing. Mm-hmm. In fact, you toured with Jerry Mulligan. Didn't I did. You? Yeah. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, all through the 1980s. And then eventually, by the time 1990 came around, my writing was really starting. You know, I was... I had uh, gotten much busier with steady writing where it was just impossible mm. to, to do it anymore. But that's, that's what happens as your career develops. You know, it's going to happen for you guys because the two of you are so versatile. And that's the other thing. I mean, I think there are some people who maybe only write. They don't perform. Right. Um, or they maybe only work in one style or whatever, you know. I mean, we, I don't know how much of that we can determine by ourselves but certainly the three of us we have similar profiles in that sense of being highly versatile you guys are both great players you know you can play in different styles of music you can write in different styles of music so you know it's a little harder in the sense that there's not one path for you to choose but the good news is is that you guys are going to be ready for whatever comes your way and you will always do something in music Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time.